Today is the day that the church historically remembers the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Our Lord rose from the dead three days after He was crucified and buried, and He's alive today. He's with us to the end of the age. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. He overcame sin. He overcame death. He overcame the curse. He conquered the grave, and we celebrate all these things today. Now, you know that I'm not a a big fan of uh, following any kind of liturgical calendar, and I don't typically leave the series that I'm working on to talk about Mother's Day or Father's Day or even Christmas Day, honestly, except for our, our Christmas banquet. But I love to kind of stop everything, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and speak about the resurrection and the atonement of Christ, or the atonement of Christ and then the resurrection. Because this is the cornerstone of our faith. Jesus died for our sins and rose again. This is a historical fact. Now, I I always do on these days, though, when I have to kind of think of what am I going to preach? What text am I going to look at? And uh, I always kind of wonder, and, and sometimes I spend, you know, way too much time thinking about what text I should preach And uh, don't leave myself a whole lot of time to prepare a sermon on that text. But I've always wondered about a verse in Romans chapter 4, and we're going to look at it this morning. Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it, it speaks about Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Again, Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. I think we understand delivered up for our trespasses. We talked about that on Friday, but the, the, the line there, raised for our justification, has always kind of made me wonder. How does the resurrection fit with justification? And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at really a great text, starting in Romans 4 and verse 18. And so we're going to look at verses 18 to 25. Now the resurrection is in focus throughout this section, but, but actually primarily as I kind of got into this and started studying it a little bit, I, I realized primarily this text deals with faith. Faith in the resurrection, but, but even more Abraham's faith. Abraham's faith before Jesus rose from the dead. Abraham's justification by faith becomes a model for us who would be justified by faith after the resurrection of Christ. And so let's look at our text. Let's read it this morning together here, starting in verse 18, Romans chapter 4. It says, In hope he believed, speaking about Abraham here, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, 
who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so we see the, the resurrection is in this text in verse 24 again, where God is called him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. And then again in verse 25, raised for our justification. But the focus of the text is really on faith, faith in God. The focus is on, on the faith that justifies or on, on faith that will be counted as righteousness, even as Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness. And so Abraham is held out as the example to show us the way to be counted as righteous by faith, just as Abraham was. Now, so far in this letter, we're going to take a little bit of time to kind of, to kind of set up the, our text here. So far in this letter, Paul has laid out the gospel. And so if you turn back uh, to Genesis 1, looking, starting at verse 15, Paul says there, Genesis 1, 15, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul is, is eager to preach the gospel. He's eager to preach the good news. Verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because he, he knows that it's the power of God. The gospel is the message that Paul preaches. And that's what God works through to save sinners. It's the, the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God. And, and it is so to everyone who believes. This is a salvation by faith to everyone who believes. And Paul further explains in verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And it does so in multiple ways, but, but what Paul has in mind here is the righteousness that God gives to his people from faith. You see, man's great need is righteousness. We need salvation from our sins. We need salvation from our unrighteousness. And the gospel reveals the way to receive this righteousness, and that way is by faith. We need righteousness because if you look at the next verse in verse 18, it says there, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And so God's wrath is revealed against all, and that's an important word there, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is angry about our sin, and God will judge us because of our sin. Now in Romans 2.5, it talks about a day when, when God's righteous judgment is going to be revealed. And our unrighteousness and our ungodliness, our sins, our failure to worship God as God is storing up for us wrath for the day of wrath. Look at verse chapter 2 and verse 5. It says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Without righteousness, we would have to pay the penalty for our sins. 
When we stand before this righteous judge, before the Lord, on the day of judgment, called there the day of wrath. And so we need to be saved from God's wrath. We need to be saved from God's wrath because God is righteously angry about our unrighteousness. And that's a huge problem for us as mankind because all of us are righteous. We are, all of us are unrighteous. We are not righteous. And Romans 1.18 all the way to 3.20 shows that every one of us, Jew or Gentile, are guilty of sin. Every human who's ever lived in this world, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, every man and woman and child that's come into this world was born guilty of sin. And therefore, every one of us is subject to God's wrath. And therefore, every one of us needs salvation. Every one of us needs righteousness. This is our great need. And the gospel reveals the righteousness that all of us need. We can't earn this righteousness ourselves because we have sinned and and no amount of law keeping can make up for the, the breaking of law that we have done. God's holy law condemns each one of us as lawbreakers. The law shows us our sin And so it can't make us righteous. And and you see that in Romans 3 and verse 20. So look over there. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so we are sinners. We can't be justified in God's sight by works of the law. To be justified means to be declared righteous. And works is not the way to be declared righteous. We need another way to be justified. We need a way as sinners to be declared righteous in his sight. And Paul introduces this way now in Romans 3 and verse 21. And we really need to understand this section in order to understand our text. And so we're going to go through verses 21 to 25-ish, just kind of like line by line, phrase by phrase. Starting there, verse 21, it says, but now. So you can't get justified by the works of the law, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now the righteousness mentioned here is the same as as we already saw in chapter 1, verse 17. It's called the righteousness of God. It's a saving righteousness that delivers us from God's wrath, and it's been revealed in the gospel. It comes by faith and not by works of the law. It's been manifested apart from the law. That's the idea there. This is, this is a separate way than by law keeping. Continuing in verse 21, it says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This righteousness doesn't come by keeping the law, but the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, we can find this righteousness spoken of in the Old Testament. And Paul's going to tell us what this righteousness is now in verse 22. He says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness comes through faith. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And it comes to all who believe, or it's for all who believe. And this righteousness of God is a perfect Righteousness. It's actually Jesus' own righteousness, which he earned by perfectly keeping the law as our representative. 
This is the righteousness that the God-man, Jesus Christ, earned for us. And so it's called the righteousness of God. Now look at the rest of this, kind of starting at the end of verse 22. It says, for there is no distinction, and the distinction there is between Jews and Gentiles. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, there's some big words here, but it's it's really not that complicated in this section. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And that's the standard, by the way. If we were gonna, if we were gonna have a relationship with God by our own works and by our own efforts, we would need a perfect sinlessness. We would have to have no sin, but all of us have sinned. On the, on the positive or on the negative side, I guess we could say we would, in order to have a relationship with God, we would have to be perfectly sinless. And on the positive side, what would be required is that we would be the glory of God. You would have to have the righteousness of God, which God's word already says, Paul already said in this letter, nobody has that. None is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.10. And so all believers have sinned. All who believe fall short of this perfect standard. All who believe are also, the text tells us, justified. That is, they are declared righteous. And this is by God's grace, justified by His grace. It's a gift from God as a gift. It's a gift that we do not deserve and that we cannot deserve. And it comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the end of verse 24. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus bought this righteousness. He earned it. And God gives it to those who believe. This Jesus God put forward as a propitiation. A propitiation is a sacrifice that takes away wrath. And so God was angry, but Jesus' sacrifice appeased God's wrath. It made God propitious towards us, which means God is now favorable towards us because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And this is by His Blood. We're just kind of working line by line through this. We're in verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And so Jesus' sacrifice made it so that God is propitious or favorable towards us. He did this by His blood. He died in our place. He paid the penalty for our sin. And now in Him, we have forgiveness of our sins and righteousness. But note again at the end of verse 25, how do we receive this? By faith. Now Paul goes on to show that, 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 um, that by saving this way, God can be just. He can, he can have his righteous judgment and he can justify the one who has faith in Jesus. And so God can be holy and yet God can forgive our sins and he's doing this through everything that Jesus Christ accomplished. And so this way of salvation then Paul continues removes all boasting because God and Jesus accomplished everything verse 28 of chapter 3 for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
Now, Paul also shows that this way of salvation is consistent with the salvation of the Old Testament saints like David and Abraham. So look at chapter 3, verse 31. He says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Look at verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. Now to the one who do, who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. I believe that's from Psalm 32. Now Paul shows too that this blessing, this salvation is both for Jews and Gentiles. And that pretty much then brings us to our text. And Abraham then is, is going to be the example of salvation by faith for everyone who believes. All that Christ accomplished, redemption, propitiation, justification, righteousness, salvation, all of it and more is to be received by faith. And so his death, burial, and resurrection is good news, good news that we need. And in our text, Paul describes how to receive it. And what we're going to do is we're going to call it three essential elements of Abraham's faith. And we're going to look at these three elements of Abraham's faith. We're going to see the object of Abraham's faith. We're going to see the overcoming of Abraham's faith. And then we're going to see the operation of Abraham's faith. And after we kind of look at Abraham, we're going to kind of do the same thing for us. And we're going to see the object of our faith. We're going to see the overcoming of our faith and the operation of our faith. And so what what Abraham did is also what Paul tells us we are to do. And so let's look at it first of all. Let's look at number one, the object of Abraham's faith. This is the first essential element of Abraham's faith, the object of his faith. And what we're asking here is what did Abraham believe and who did Abraham believe? You see, faith is only as good as its object. Faith is not some feeling that we're supposed to work up. I think sometimes we have a a misunderstanding of faith and we think it's some kind of a a feeling that we're supposed to build up. But, But faith is really all about the object of faith. Faith must have a basis. It must be grounded upon something. And so we might ask somebody who believes, why do you believe that thing? What's What's the basis for your belief? Now, some of my family is part of a program called uh, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And Alcoholics Anonymous says something like, you can't really stop drinking on your own. What you need is you need a God. Maybe we'd put a small G there. You need a, you need a God to help you. And, and they called this God your higher power. And your higher power could be anything in AA. They, they don't even care what it is. Just whatever you want. And they would say maybe something like, you know, your higher power is the God of your understanding with the emphasis on the your, whatever, whatever you think. But this isn't, this isn't how it works. You know, we can't make up a God of our understanding and then have faith in 
that God. I don't know what to call that God. Him, her, it, whatever you call it. You, you, it doesn't work like that. You just can't make something up and, and believe that thing if it's not true. And if there is a God who made the heavens and the earth, and there is, and, and there is, then there is only one such God, then we have to believe that God, right? We have to believe the true God. If we understand some different God, if we make up a God of our own understanding, that is no God at all. And even if you think about it, even if multiple gods existed in the universe, we, we would still have to trust those gods that actually existed, not gods that we thought up in our own minds, right? You guys are kind of following me here on this? See, faith needs a basis. Faith is, is trust. And so we always need to think, who am I trusting or, or what am I trusting for? We can't just make something up and then try to believe it. That's, that's not going to work. That's just uh, imagination and presumption. You know, imagine, imagine that on a human level. Let's, let's say you're, you're going to go out of town next week and, and you've got a dog staying home at your house. And, and what if you would just say, okay, I'm going to believe. I'm just going to believe that my friend is going to come by and feed the dog. Well, you know, let, let's say you didn't ask your friend. You, you just, you just believed that they would do it. Let's say your friend didn't say they would care for the dog. Then it does no good to believe that your friend's going to care for the dog if you didn't ask them to care for the dog. And if the dog didn't, if you didn't say that you would do that, what good would believing be in that case? That, that's not faith. That's presumption. Now, if you did ask your friend and, and your friend said that they would come over and care for your dog, then you would have every reason to believe that your friend would care for your dog, especially if your friend is trustworthy and, and generally faithful and reliable. So faith trusts somebody or something to do something on some basis. I don't know if you can follow that, but faith trusts someone or sometimes something, but faith trusts someone to do something on some basis. And that's exactly what we see with Abraham. Abraham didn't just decide that he wanted to be the father of many nations on his own. He didn't come up with that on his own. God had told Abraham that he would do it. And so we want to turn back to Genesis 15 and kind of trace the, the promises of God to Abraham. Go to Genesis 15 here. This is the, the section that Paul quotes from when he said that, that God counted Abraham's or Abraham's faith as righteousness. That's Genesis 15:6 that Paul quotes from. But starting at verse 1, Genesis 15 starting at verse 1, after these things the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, fear not Abraham, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look, at the, look toward heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. 
And so the word of the Lord came to Abraham in verse 1, and the word of the Lord came to Abraham again in verse 4, and God told him that he would have a son and that he would have numerous offspring. Now, offspring is literally seed there, which, which points us back to the promise of a seed that would crush the serpent's head. And, and we're not going to kind of follow that train of thought today. And I don't even know how much Abraham knew about all of that. But, but this seed we know is ultimately Jesus Christ. He's the seed who would come through Abraham and through his descendants. But look at verse 6. And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord. Abraham believed Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so Abraham believed the Lord. And so there's the object of Abraham's faith. He believed God. He believed Yahweh. And the word of the Lord came to him and he believed God and he believed what God had said. So shall your offspring be at the end of verse 5. And so Abraham believed somebody, he believed Yahweh, he believed Yahweh to do something, to give him an heir, to multiply his seed, and Abraham believed this something on the basis because God said that he would do it. And so like I said, all faith has uh, an object, someone to do something on the basis of something. Abraham believed God on the basis of the promise that God gave him that he would accomplish this thing. And so the object of Abraham's faith is God and his promise. That's really important. The object of Abraham's faith is God and his promise. He believed the God who promised. And because of that trust in God, God counted Abraham as righteous. Abraham trusted, God counted him as righteous. Or God counted it to him as righteousness. And so that's the object of Abraham's faith. Let's go number two now. And let's think about the overcoming of Abraham's faith. And this is all going to apply to us in a little bit. But number two, the, the overcoming of Abraham's faith. And you could turn back just to Genesis chapter 12 here. You see, Abraham had some serious obstacles to his faith. You might remember that the Lord first appeared to Abraham when he was 75 years old, and that's, again, recorded in Genesis 12. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country from and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him and lot with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, Abraham believed here as well, and he went out. In Genesis 15, what we just read earlier, Abraham was about 85 years old at that point. If you turn to Genesis 17, look at Genesis 17, starting in verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, 
For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now look at verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And so we see here a great obstacle to Abraham's faith. He is 99 years old. His wife is 90 years old. Now, people have seemed to have lived a little bit longer then, but, but still, they're beyond the age of bearing children. It had been already 25 years with no children since God had spoken to Abraham. 25 years since God promised to bless Abraham and make of him a great nation. Now, if we go back, and and let's do that, let's go back to Romans and look at verse, starting in verse 18, it says there, in hope, he believed against hope. You see, there there was no hope, naturally speaking, that he would bear a child. But in hope, because God promised, he believed against hope. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now, I, I just think this is kind of funny. I, I kind of get a kick out of this. Abraham is as good as dead. Sarah was barren. And, and when he considered these things, though, Abraham did not weaken his faith. Now, some manuscripts actually say that he did not consider these things, but But remarkably, even though it's the opposite, it really ends up being true as well. In a sense, Abraham didn't consider his own body or Sarah's barrenness. He he overlooked it. He did not allow these things to weaken his trust in God. But the older manuscripts say that he, he did consider these things, but still... It did not hinder his trust. It didn't, he didn't weaken his faith in the consideration of these things. Verse 20 says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Unbelief did not make him waver. Abraham believed God's promise despite the fact that it was, it was really not humanly possible for them to have a child. Abraham's faith overcame the obstacles because he believed God's word. And, and that's kind of the negative side of this. He, he overcame. Now Paul puts it positively in verse 20 and 21. And we're going to call this the operation of Abraham's faith. Look at the second part of verse 20. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. <clears throat> So we've seen that that he did not weaken in faith, verse 19, but now positively it says that he grew strong in his faith, or he was strengthened 
in his faith, probably God strengthening him, this being a divine passive that, that God is the one who, who strengthened him in faith. This is a, another way to say that Abraham believed God. He was fully convinced, the text says, fully convinced that God was able to give him a child, fully convinced that God could and would do what he said. And to think otherwise would, would be either to think that God was a liar or that God could not do what God had said. To think otherwise would be either to think God was a liar or to think him weak. If God is powerful and God is true, then God will do what he says. That's the, the basis of faith. And so look up at, at actually look up at verse 17 here of chapter four and see what it calls God there. <clears throat> verse 17, it says, the God in whom he believed. The God in whom Abraham believed was the, the one true and living God. And look what it says about him. Again, verse 17, the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. <clears throat> and so God is a God who gives life to the dead, and Abraham believed that God could give him life, that, that he could give life to Sarah's womb. He believed later that, that God could even give Isaac uh, life from the dead. And so in Hebrews chapter eleven seventeen to 19, it says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your, your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so Abraham believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And Abraham believed that God could call Isaac into existence, that he could even raise him from the dead. And this faith, according to our text in Romans 4, this faith glorified God. But to not believe, again, is to make God a liar or to make him weak. To believe God is to give him glory because we're saying that he is true and that we believe that he is able to do what he said. But again, we have to believe what he says and, and not just wish something that he would say. And that's what Abraham was doing. He was trusting the word of the Lord. God promised. Abraham believed. He gave glory to God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do exactly what he promised. And again, verse 22 of our text, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now we need to go from Abraham's faith and start to think about our faith. So we're going to see three essential elements of our faith. And let's think first of all then about the object of our faith. The object of our faith, number, number one in, in point two of your outline, I guess, sub point one. Abraham believed God and his promise. Abraham's faith looked forward to the seed because God had promised his, him a son. So Abraham's faith kind of looks forward to the coming scene, look, really looking forward to the coming of Christ. And that faith in the coming seed counted, God counted as righteousness to Abraham. 
Now, God had not yet revealed to Abraham or to the world all that he would do through the seed, but, but Abraham, I think, likely knew more than we think or more than we often give him credit for. Now, our faith looks kind of the other way. Abraham looked forward to the coming promised seed. Ours looks back at the coming seed. Ours looks back on Jesus, the ultimate seed of Abraham, the Son of God who came into this world. And he lived a perfect life of obedience and died on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners like we read in Romans 3, 21 to 26. And so we look back on the righteousness that Jesus earned on the redemption that he accomplished. We look back on the propitiation by his blood and really everything that our Lord accomplished by his death, burial, and resurrection. And so we look back on the cross and we look back to the resurrection. But besides that, our faith is really very much the same as Abraham's faith. The object of our faith is God, the God who promised. And what did God promise? Well, he promised righteousness. He promised salvation. He promised justification to all who believe. Again, chapter 1 and verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Or Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or we could consider Romans 4 and verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. These are the the promises of God to us that He will save us and declare us righteous if we believe in Him and in His Son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and so the object of our faith is that we believe in, in Him who justifies the ungodly. We believe in Him who declares the ungodly righteous. This is speaking about God there. Romans 4.5 Him who justifies the ungodly. And if we believe His promise, our faith is counted as righteousness. That's the promise. God made the promise and we're called to believe that promise. If you skip ahead to Romans chapter 10, look at verse 6. Romans 10.6, but the righteousness based on faith says... And just to make it simple, we're going to skip over verses 6 to 9. Paul's going to come back to this, but the righteousness based on faith says, what does that, the righteousness based on faith say? Look at verse 9. It says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
And the promise is, again, if you confess Christ and you believe Him, you will be saved. You will be delivered. You will be justified. You will be made righteous. If you do this, you will receive His riches if you call on Him. Notice verse 11 again. Here we believe in Him, in Jesus. And so God is the object of our faith in Romans 4, 5, but here Jesus is the object of our faith. And so we're to believe what God has already done through Jesus Christ. We believe God and Christ and the promise or the promises that we have from them. That's the object of our faith. God and Christ and the promises that we have in them. We believe what verse 25 of our text says, which is, was really a summary of the gospel. In fact, look, let's go back there and look at that. <clears throat> That's really what, what verse 25 is. I think in the beginning I kind of asked a question, what is this text all about? It's really a summary of the whole gospel. Verse 24, about partway through there, it says, It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. That's God there. That's We believe in Him who raised Jesus our dead from the... Uh, or, or Jesus from the dead, raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. That's speaking about God there. And then verse 25, it says, who, and that's now we're referring to Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so again, the object of our faith is God and Jesus, and we are to believe the promise of God that we have in the gospel. In Acts 16 and verse 30, the the Philippian jailer asks, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And in verse 31, they, the apostles, they say, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And so if you believe and if your household believes, if anyone believes God, what God accomplished through Christ, they will be saved. You will be saved. And so that's the, the first essential uh, aspect of our faith. The object of our faith, God and Christ. Now secondly, let's think about the overcoming of our faith. See, a- Abraham had to overcome some serious obstacles in order to cling to God's promise. And, and we really do as well. Look, at, look back at, again, Romans 4, 5. I know I've read it a few times already, but look back at that text. It's a very important verse. And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. Now our problem again is that that we are ungodly. Again, Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, No one does good, not even one. If you look down at verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This describes us. And again, our problem as as humanity is that we are unrighteous. Now, we believe that God counts us as righteous, but we still have sin in our lives. We still do sin. Now, Paul's going to tell us later in Romans chapter 5 to 8 that, that if we're justified by faith, we are going to overcome sin step by step in, in sanctification. But like Abraham, we have to believe something that, that we can't exactly see. We can't see the righteousness that God applies to us because of Christ. 
And so we have some overcoming to do in our own faith. In hope, we need to believe against hope. We too shouldn't weaken in faith when we consider our own righteousness and how we fall short every day of our lives from the glory of God. We should not waver in unbelief concerning the promise of God. We shouldn't make God a liar or think that the redemption in Christ Jesus is somehow insufficient to make us righteous. We need to cling to the promise of God that we have in His Word. And so we too should be fully convinced that God will justify us, that He will sanctify us, and that He will glorify us. And that really just kind of ties in then to number three of our outline, the the operation of our faith. So we've kind of seen what we have to overcome. Now we see the, the more positive side, maybe, that we should be fully convinced that God will do what He says. Just as Abraham believed and grew strong in the faith, giving glory to God, so too we must must do. The faith that we're to have is to take God at His word. And that kind of faith, if we, if we truly have this kind of faith, then just like Abraham did, and, and just like we saw in his life afterwards, Abraham obeyed God and followed God and, and lived for the Lord. If we have this faith, it will rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It will present itself a living sacrifice because of the mercies of God, Romans 12.1. What I want you to catch here is that, that this kind of faith will result not only in justification, but the full and, and true salvation that's found in Christ. If we truly believe this gospel, this good news, then we will have the full salvation that, that God describes for us in the whole book of Romans. And as we believe the promises of God, we too, just like Abraham, can trust that God will be glorified and that we will be justified even as Abraham was. Look again at our text, verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so I ask you this morning, do you believe in Him who raised from the dead the Lord Jesus? Do you believe in Him? If you do, it will be counted to us as righteousness. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in the God who raised His Son from the dead. And again, verse 25 is really a summary of the gospel. It's the summary of, of all that we are to believe about the Lord Jesus Christ, that He was delivered up for our trespasses, like we talked about on Good Friday, and that He was raised from the dead for our justification. The word translated there in both halves of that text is, is translated elsewhere because, again, I'm in, I'm in verse 25, delivered up for, I'm looking at that word for there, for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Elsewhere, that, that, that construction is translated because of or for the sake of. And so Jesus was delivered up for the sake of our trespasses, and he was raised up for the sake of our justification. And His resurrection shows that He is the Messiah, that He is God the Son, that He is the Christ, that He is the Savior of the world, and that God accepted His sacrifice 
for our sins. Otherwise, he wouldn't have raised him from the dead. And so the resurrection proves that that we can be declared righteous by faith alone and that God can do what he promised. And so do not waver in unbelief, but grow strong in faith. Be strengthened in faith and give glory to God. Be fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised and cling to the promise, not only for salvation and and initial justification, but for the promise of a complete and full salvation that we have in Christ. This is our faith. Following the pattern of Abraham's faith, we see the object of our faith. We see what we're to overcome by faith. And we see the operation of our faith. We are to be fully convinced. And the Bible promises, God promises that if we are, then we are justified. We are saved. And in that, we can greatly rejoice. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you designed salvation, that you designed it, that by simply believing, by simply trusting in what Christ has done, that you would save us. Father, many of us here have trusted in Christ, and so we thank you for this salvation that you've given us. We thank you for your justification. We thank you that, that this faith that doesn't just, doesn't just, uh, make us righteous, but, but really does work in other ways as well, Father. But we just thank you that, that it's not by works, that, that we didn't, have to do some great thing, but by simply trusting in, in you, that you give us this great gift of salvation. We thank you this morning that our Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and uh, we thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. Uh, we pray you'd bless the rest of our service in Jesus' name. Amen.